Good morning, or good evening, everyone. Good to see you along today. It's been a lovely day with you folks. We've really enjoyed it and enjoyed the fellowship of the believers and uh, over at Rick and Betty's this afternoon. My, what a cook! <laughs> She's famous, I hear, and boy, we really enjoyed that meal. Thanks so much, and the fellowship of the believers as well. Um, I'm glad you came out tonight. I want to talk about something that's really dear to my heart, something that's very exciting that the Lord is doing. And I'm glad to see younger men and women here today as well. Not that we don't appreciate the older ones, but, you know, I I look at younger men today and I'm thinking, boy, would I love to get a hold of you. You know, I don't think we appreciate on this side of the world the great need there is for missionaries. We sort of think the job's done. Folks, we haven't touched the surface. Uh, just think, in 1970, the world population was 3.5 billion people. Hmm? 1970, 3.5 billion people. Now, some of you old-timers, I want you just to remember, how many assemblies, how many missionaries were linked to the assemblies in 1970s that were going out in the mission field? Hmm? Now, just go forward 45 years. The population of the world has doubled. we got 7 billion people out there. Has our number of missionaries doubled in that period of time? I think we've gone down, actually. You see, I don't think there's a greater need now, there's a greater time in the world for missionaries than there is today. The world is completely, there, there is such a need out there. And, and the exciting thing is that there, there are pockets in the world where the gospel is truly being blessed, where inroads are being made. And some of these countries that uh, were formerly closed and are still closed, I'm thinking of China and some of the, uh, the Middle Eastern countries where, where it's very difficult, but that's where the gospel is being blessed. There are people being saved in those places in tremendous ways. And so uh, tonight, I want to just raise our sights up again to lift up our eyes upon the fields that they're white and ready to harvest. And uh, we need to really pray. And this has been the old, old problem. Wherever you go, the laborers are few. We need to pray that young men and young women will will feel the touch of God on their life and realize, you know what? I'm going to do that. I'm going to follow that command and take the gospel to the other side of the world. Now, uh, this evening, I'm with my, my beautiful wife, Karen, and uh, uh, some of you are kind of wondering where she came from. Well, my wife is, uh, she's Mohawk Indian. So uh, she's about as Canadian as you can get <laughs> until us white guys came and stole the land from her. But anyways, that's my, that's my wife. She's from Mohawk, she's a Mohawk uh, Indian. And uh, now she was raised on a reserve in Brantford, Ontario. And uh, she came from a family of ten, with 10 children. She was number five, and mom was 22 when she was given birth to, to Karen. Now, it was a desperate situation in my wife's home. Um, there was a lot of uh, nasty things that went on. And um, the government came in and took all 10 kids and removed them out of the home. And they took my wife and a sibling on each side of her. They took these three girls and they put her in a foster home. And this foster home was attending an assembly in Ontario. 
in Brantford. And that's how my wife came to hear the gospel. And, and she's been interested in serving the Lord ever since she got saved. Now, for myself, I came from an unsaved home. Um, my parents immigrated from overseas, from Europe, after the war. They settled in, in Saskatchewan. Uh, I come from a family of four children. Uh, my oldest brother, uh, he, uh, he was 10 years older than I was. And when I was seven, we were living in Saskatchewan at the prairies. When I was seven, he was, uh, he was 17, and he, he said, Dad, I've had enough. I'm leaving home. And he headed out to Vancouver, and uh, he went head first into sin and did as much as he could to enjoy the pleasures of sin. And, and, uh, and, and we didn't hear much about him, and he was just a wild guy. And finally, um, about, uh, I was 16 now. It was about 10 years later. There was, my, by this time, my mom and dad were divorced, and I was living with my dad. I got into so much trouble, my mom couldn't handle me, so she, she sent me over to my dad. And um, we got a cassette tape in the mail. And in this cassette tape, it came from my brother. And it said, to mom and dad fa and family. And on the other side, it said, God bless you. And I thought, God bless you? What's that nonsense all about? I mean, he is farthest thing away from talking about God, except for in taking his name in vain. And... And in the tape, it told us how he'd become a Christian and how his life had changed and how he, um, he, he had stopped smoking and drinking and chasing women. And, and I looked at my dad and I said, Dad, there's something wrong with him. He's in a cult. He's got an occult. I know it. And, uh, and Dad, I said, would you allow me to go out and rescue him from this cult? <laughs> and he says, well, that would be fine, son. You go ahead. So I, I just got my driver's license and bought a car, and I took my little sister with me, 14. Now I'm looking back at that now, now this is a few years ago, a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old traveling like three days across the country. And, uh, and so we, we headed out to British Columbia, out to Vancouver, and, uh, and I found my brother. And uh, that was the very first time I came face to face with a, a real, live, living Christian. And, uh, and I was coming out there to rescue him. And within the very first day of being spending time with him, I mean, he had me up till three in the morning telling me everything he knew about the Bible. And, uh, and I was soaking it up. And it was, it was answering my questions. And it was, it was creating an interest in the things of God. And, and, well, to make a long story short, I trusted the Lord on August 18, 1975. It's between my 10th and 11th year of high school. I went back to Regina, and I was in uh, this little assembly in Regina, and uh, I was saved a couple of months, and uh, the elders said that there's going to be a missionary coming on Wednesday night, and she's going to give a report on India, where she had been serving the Lord. Now, I wondered, what on earth is a missionary? I've never heard of that before. You'll have to remember that I've come from a completely dark background when it comes to the Bible and spiritual things. I remember when I first got saved and I was looking at the Bible for the first time and I remember reading something about um, the epistle of Paul the Apostle. And I'm thinking, what on earth is that? I figured out what an apostle was. And the best I could come up with in the, was, was that an epistle was a female apostle. That was, a, <laughs> that was the best I could come up with. So I was a really ignorant guy when it came to the scriptures. So Eventually, uh, this missionary came, and, and I still remember this lady talking about India. 
And I said to the Lord, just a young Christian, I said, Lord, if you can do anything with me, I want to give my life to you and serve you as a missionary. So while I heard, told you a little bit this morning how my wife and I met, uh, at least I think I did, maybe I didn't, but we met at mile zero on the Alaska Highway. Um, she, was, she took a nursing post up there, and I was transferred my company up to Fort St. John, and the assembly was in Dawson Creek, and we, we met there, we, and, uh, and uh, well, the Lord had great plans for our lives, and we didn't know what it was all about, but both of us wanted to serve the Lord. As we uh, started to develop in the things of the, of the Lord and, and develop as a family, I ended up with, we had three lovely boys and uh, three little guys, and I bought a house and I had a mortgage and I bought a car, so I had a car loan, and, and you know what it's like. And that mission field just seemed to be looking further and further away. And I was thinking, how on earth am I ever going to be able to serve the Lord with all of this around me, all of this stuff? And uh, we had moved to another assembly this time, and uh, one of the elders, he approached me and he said, Sid, have, have you ever thought of serving the Lord as a, as a missionary? And I says, oh man, if you only knew how badly I wanted to do that. Well, that just sort of resurrected this interest in serving the Lord. And, and you know, the last thing that hit my mind before I went to sleep at night was serving the Lord on the mission field. And and the first thing in the morning was to, to, to take the gospel to the lost, and that's what I wanted to do. So I'm, I'm going to just leap ahead a little bit here. Eventually, I was transferred with my company out to Ontario and uh, to, uh, to actually where my, my wife's family had been in the assembly there. And that assembly commanded us to serve the Lord in a place called Botswana. So just keep the lights up for a minute. I'm, I'm just going to talk a little bit about Botswana. We arrived in the capital city here called Habaroni, which is in the bottom of the, of the map. And uh, we were working with some uh, other missionaries from Northern Ireland. Dr. Clark and Hazel Logan uh, were in Habaroni. They'd been there for 10 years already. And uh, so we, we joined with them and were serving the Lord together. And uh, they started to teach us Setswana. That's the language of, of the people there. Started to develop uh, uh, and um, understand the culture. And then um, we had now been on the field for six months. And uh, <clears throat> we had rented a house in the suburbs. Um, and uh, most um, house, houses in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa are designed like this. You'd have one house where the family lives. And then at the back of the plot, you would have what are called servants' quarters. And that's where your maid would live, and that's where your gardener would live, and any other domestic help, they would, they would live there. And so... Um, <clears throat> We had rented the main house from the landlord, and the landlady had rented these small single-room dwellings to poorer people who needed a place to stay. So we're all together in this big plot. Now, after six months on the field, I came down with some sort of an illness. Um, it was uh, like a flu. I had a sinus infection. And uh, in the African culture, it's very important that you visit people. Uh, some of it has to do with uh, the idea of, of superstition. Um, when people are sick, often people think it's because they have been vexed and a curse has been brought upon them by the witch doctor. Someone pays the witch doctor and he would bring a curse upon somebody and that's why they're sick. So whenever somebody is sick, there's always a suspicion, who did this to me? And the quickest way is getting your name off the list is go visit that person. So that was what happened. And so this guy, he came in 
This is one guy who lived in the back of these servants' quarters at the back of, my, of our plot, and he came in to visit me. Now, he didn't know it at the time, but he had active tuberculosis. And while he was visiting with me, I'm not sure what had happened. Either he uh, coughed or what, what actually took place, but something happened that the TB bacilli passed from him to myself. Now, normally TB, you know it as, as pulmonary tuberculosis. It goes into your lungs and, and becomes a pulmonary condition. But in my situation, because I had sinus, uh, infected sinuses, the TB bacilli went into the sinuses and then <clears throat> migrated to the meninges, which is the lining around your brain and your spinal cord. And so I began to get really ill. And um, my wife, being a nurse, had done her best to try and, 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 and keep the pain at bay. But I was just getting sicker and sicker. And it was accompanied by such severe pain, I can't tell you and describe how it was. My legs were so painful that the only thing I could find that would help was a bit of heat. Uh, we get the biggest, strongest painkillers we could get wouldn't touch the pain. And so my wife would, would, would get some uh, hot water bottles and put them on. And, and I remember one night, it was about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I was just, I was screaming out in pain. And, uh, and I said to Karen, listen, I can't take this any longer. Can you run the bath for me? Now, I just installed a, a gas water heater in our house. We didn't have power for the first five years in Botswana. And so this was a new luxury for us to have actually hot water. And so she filled the, the, the bath and, and she lit these what we call paraffin lamps. Here you call them kerosene um, hurricane lamps. That's how we lit our house. And I got into the bath, and oh man, it just felt so nice to feel that pain starting to go away. But as the water cooled, the pain started to come back with such, such tremendous, uh, I can't describe it, it was killing me. And I said to Karen, listen, you're going to have to call Clark and, and get him to, I need to see a doctor. So Clark's a gynecologist, but at 4 o'clock in the morning, I wasn't fussy, I'll talk to any doctor who's going to come around. So uh, she called Clark, and, uh, and he says uh, he'll be right over. But uh, so Karen came back into the bath, to a bathroom, and she says, Sid, let's, let's get you out of the tub and get you back into the, into the bedroom. So I said, yeah. So I, I, I started to move to get out of the tub, and that was the first time I, 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 I realized that I couldn't move my legs anymore. And so uh, I said to her, I can't move. I can't, I can't move my legs. And so she said, uh, well, let me get a towel. And she put a towel on the floor. And uh, I worked myself up on the edge of the tub and fell on the towel. And then I pushed my hands, and she pulled the towel and dragged me into the bedroom. And uh, I don't know how I got into the bed, but I fell unconscious at that time. Now, before I go any further, I want us just to turn in our Bibles. And I'm going to read a couple of verses to you that have meant something to me over the years. And it's found in the book of Philippians. There are two verses. Philippians chapter 1. And when we read these verses, I want to draw your attention, at least in the King James, uh, to the little preposition, the word in. And you'll find how it is used in these two verses. Philippians chapter 1. And look at verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun...
until the day of Jesus Christ. He which hath begun a good work in you. Now turn over to the next chapter. And look at verse 13 of chapter 2. It's a similar verse. It has a similar word in it. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now I'm going to refer to these verses in a few moments, but I want to have those planted in your minds just now. So I fell unconscious, and Dr. Logan and his wife came into my room. They took one look at me, and they said, we've got to get him to the hospital right now. So uh, we don't have ambulances. They put me in the back of his pickup truck. They took me to the hospital, and uh, the doctor there immediately tried to save my life. She hit me with every antibiotic she had, and uh, as uh, the hours went on, I was just getting worse. And my body was just shutting down, and she said, there's something wrong with the brain. We don't know what it is, and we don't have a CAT scan machine in the country. We don't have an MRI machine. He needs to go to Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, at that time, that was when apartheid was still active in South Africa. And because of our Canadian government's position against apartheid, Canadians were not welcome in South Africa. We weren't allowed in the country. So they had to do an emergency medical visa for us to get into the country. And uh, Karen and, um, and myself and a, and a single missionary, a lady, uh, got in the plane. Our three boys were shuffled off to different Christian homes. And we flew down to Johannesburg. And the, uh, the doctors then right away started to, to look at my, my situation. And they did all the tests and all these things. And I was just not getting better. My body was just shutting down. The organs were different, shutting down. And, and my lungs were about to shut down. They were going to put a tracheotomy in. And one of the neurologists, he said this, listen, let's treat him with TB drugs, just on the off chance that this is TB meningitis. It takes apparently several weeks for a diagnosis to be presented in TB meningitis. So they, let's just treat him with TB drugs. So they began to treat me with TB drugs. And... Uh, Within a day or two, I, I came back to consciousness, and I remember waking up, and I felt, felt my legs, and I'd lost over 40 pounds in my legs in, in that short period of time. And the thing is, I couldn't move my legs, and I couldn't feel them. As I grabbed my legs, I couldn't feel them. And eventually, the, the, the neurologist, he came in, and uh, once I was conscious, and he says, okay, we, we want to do as a very simple test on you, and it's a pinprick test. We want to see at what level on your spine the injury is. So he uncovered my leg, and he says, I'm going to start to poke you on your foot, and I'm going to move up your leg. And when you feel something, you let me know. So he started to poke me, and, and I'm thinking, you know, like, whose leg is that? I can see the skin being depressed, but it's not my, I don't feel a thing. And he works up my leg, and, and finally when he get uh, the mid-chest, that's when I started to feel the, the pinprick. And the doctor said, you know, young man, you have a serious, a serious injury in your spine. So he left, and uh, at this time, uh, the senior missionaries in Botswana were missionaries from Scotland, Jim and Irene Lake. And they had driven down to Johannesburg to see me. And I still remember Jim's words when he came to me. He said, Sid, if you'll let me, I'll take you back home to Canada. 
And I'm thinking, oh, Jim, I don't want to go back yet. I mean, I haven't done anything for the Lord. I've been here six months. I haven't seen one soul saved. I haven't done anything. I don't want to go back yet. He says, listen, Sid, you've got a serious illness now. You need to get back where you can get some therapy. And if the Lord opens the door, you can come back. But you need to go home. And so Karen and I prayed about it, and we made plans, and, and it was the best thing for us to do was to go back to, to Toronto. So we were air ambulance from Johannesburg to Toronto. The ambulance picked us up at the, air, at, the, at the airplane. They took us to a special hospital there, a Mississauga General Hospital. And uh, they, they did all the tests all over again because everything was in Afrikaans, all the results, and they couldn't read them. And, and they did all the tests again, and, and plus they wanted to have more confidence in what the African doctors had done. And, and uh, they came back with the same results, that I was TB meningitis. And I was seven weeks in that hospital. And I just started now just to be able to move my toe a little bit. I could move my, my big toe. And so they, they sent me to a special rehab hospital that is designed for spinal cord patients, only spinal cord injured patients. And my, what, a, what, a, what an experience that was. But I came into that hospital, and on my, I, had, I was going to be therapy eight hours a day. And the very first therapy session, I was in the gymnasium, and the therapist was on her hands and knees, and she was trying to teach me how to crawl like a baby on my hands and knees. And for the first time, just the enormous weight of this challenge hit me like a ton of bricks. And I started to weep. And I, and I asked the lady if she could just leave me for a few moments while I composed myself. And I began to just cry and weep and, and pray and and. And I said, Lord, why? Why have you allowed this to happen? I mean, I've just, I've just, was it not your will for me to go out there? Was it not your will for me to serve you? Was it not your will for men to take the gospel out to, to the lost? Why, Lord, have you done this? Why have you allowed this to happen? And then these two verses came to my mind. Being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And you know, as a young missionary, for the first time, I began to appreciate that God was far more interested in the work that he'll do in me more than the work he'll do through me. And you know, that's really what it's all about, isn't it, for becoming a Christian? It's really about becoming like Christ. And that's what the Lord, sometimes the Lord has to bring us through serious challenges and difficulties in order to, to make us and equip us into the people that he wants us to be. And I'm looking into the audience today and I'm looking at faces and some of you are nodding your head because you know what? You've gone through those challenges. I know that. And some of you who haven't nodded your head, I want you just to be ready that they are, they're coming. And the only confidence that you and I have is that tremendous promise that we have from God's Word, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Wow, did that ever put a new spin on this whole trial? You know what? I began to appreciate this. I began to understand, you know, there's no Bible school in the world that offers a course on what I'm going to go through. This is something that I'm really going to learn right from the very hand of God. And what a tremendous privilege it was to be able to take this experience from the hand of God and to be able to use it for God's honor and for God's glory. 
Well, I went through three months of therapy, and I, I walked out of that hospital. In fact, after that, I, I walked out with two walking sticks, and then I had another full year of therapy from 9 o'clock in the morning till 12 noon, uh, five days a week. And after 18 months of therapy, I was able to walk pretty much as good as you guys, with no walking sticks, nothing, and I could walk. And the Lord gave a tremendous recovery. And so Karen and I, we thought, what's holding us back? Let's go back and serve the Lord. So you can dim the lights now, and I'll pick up the story here again back in Botswana. So here we are, back in Habaroni. We, we fly back to Habaroni. Now, you know those Africans, I'll tell you. When they saw the big, rich, white missionary get in the plane and take off back to his homeland, they thought, we'll never see this guy again. What a thrill when we arrived back. They actually knocked me to the ground. They were so excited to see me. They jumped on me, knocked me to the ground. It was so exciting. And, and they really knew that we were there because we loved them. And so we carried on in Haberoni for six months. Now, all of us in Botswana, the missionaries, we've always dreamt of going to new areas and starting new works. There's no sense in piling the missionaries up in one place. We thought, let's go to a new area. So we spotted a village up in the northern part of the country in a village called Maun. Now, Maun is the, uh, is the tribal capital for the Batawana tribe. And so my wife and our three little boys, we moved up to, Bots up to Maun, and we bought a, a, a piece of land in the middle of the village. And um, <clears throat> I still remember talking to my boys before we left Canada. I said, now, boys, what's the one toy you want to bring from Canada over to Botswana. And all three of them said, we want to bring our Tonka trucks. I thought, okay, we can do that. So here we are in Maun. We're digging the trenches for our new house that we're building in the middle of the village. And that left a big pile of dirt. Now you can't keep little boys away from a big pile of dirt and their Tonka trucks, right? And then as we looked at these three little guys, there were 20 little African boys all gathered in the perimeter that could hardly wait to play with these new toys that had come into the village. They'd never seen anything like this before. And so Karen and I looked at each other and thought, hey, Sunday school. And we started with these kids. And uh, we started with them just under the shade of a tree in our backyard under a Mopani tree. And we preached the gospel to these little guys. And, and they brought their friends along. And uh, some of them brought their, their parents along. And it was very apparent that our work was going to be really with the young people of, Bot of Botswana. In fact, today in Botswana, there are six assemblies. And all six assemblies are governed by elders who are men that were saved in the Sunday school. These are the ones who are gone on. You see, the older ones get saved as well, but we find that there's, a, there's still a tendency to go back. There's a, there's a lot of cultural baggage that they have to get over. But if we see them saved at a young age, we can save them from some of these problems that the older ones have faced. And so the Sunday school was just a tremendous, exciting thing just to see how that developed. And uh, we just treat these kids like, like, like normal kids, you know. And you know what? The African family generally is a is a big family, and often the children go get a whole lot of attention. And uh, so when somebody unique like ourselves, Karen and I being the white guys coming into this area, um, uh, we, we, we got a lot of attention. And, and when we gave them attention, boy, we had a friend for life. Okay, these little guys, they loved us. Now here's Karen. She's teaching a Sunday school class in Maun. This is a typical setting in the village. You can see just a mud hut there, and there's a modern house at the background. It's not uncommon to see a mud hut like this with a satellite dish on the side of it, uh, beaming their TV uh, signal in. And uh, 
we, uh, we uh, use PowerPoint with the kids there, and I go through all the things that, that you and I would, would teach, and um, it was just really exciting. But you know, these, these African kids are so, so cool. Um, they, they, they really think we're neat. They think we're neat, you know, because um, I, I remember driving through the bush, and a little African boy will come running up to the truck, and you'll holler out, you go, Lakoa! Now, Lakoa is, is white man in Setswana. But the tone in which he says it is, look everybody a giraffe. That's the sort of, uh, you know, he's so surprised to see us. And, uh, and you know, we're, we're different to them, and, and, and they just, they really want to hang out with you. And it's just a really great time. And, of course, the whole idea is to see them saved and baptized and, and come into in the assembly. Now, there's, Botswana is a fantastic place to preach the gospel, Okay. Uh, you can go anywhere and preach the gospel. You can go to the prisons, you can go to the, uh, uh, the schools, you can set up a, a Sunday school under any tree. And um, now we, we tried something a bit different. There's a, there's a mall in Mao. Now you have to use your imagination when I talk about a mall. It's more like a bazaar, a pedestrian passageway where a bunch of people have set up tables and some sort of a makeshift uh, shade cloth just to keep the sun off their heads. And and for some reason, I think there must have been a world shortage in underwear because everybody sold underwear off these tables. My boys even nicknamed the place Underwear Alley. So um, I said, hey, guys, let's set up the book table in Underwear Alley, and, uh, and we'll see what happens. And we set up the book table once a month there for many years. And it was tremendous how um, setting up a book table like that, people came up, they bought lots of Christian books and Bibles. We gave away a lot of materials. Well, a really, really exciting uh, opportunity to reach out to the community. The prison also was a very good way. Um, I've been preaching at the prison uh, for 17 years, 7 o'clock in the morning every Wednesday. I go to the prison, and I've got, uh, I've got all these prison officers, as you can see here. I'm preaching with them, and, and, uh, and also with the prisoners. It opened up to another prison farm, and eventually it opened up to the police station. I had, uh, uh, every second week, I had uh, 60 police officers. And the government has mandated that every government organization, every government office is allowed to have one hour a week dedicated on company time to a spiritual thing. So you can go to any of these government offices, uh, you can go to the, the, the immigration office and talk to the officers there and say, listen, would you like me to conduct a Bible study here on Wednesday morning? And they say, oh yeah, would you do that? And yes, we would. And so you come there and there's your immigration officers and you, you have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. What an exciting this thing to do. So, but the most exciting has got to be this, the old-fashioned gospel tent. You can't beat that. I mean, we love setting up the tent in, in Mao, and there's so many exciting things that happen when this happens. And, um, you know, you set up the tent, and this is the name of our assembly in Setswana. It's called Into Yaifangheli. And, uh, you know, of course, the kids think the circus has arrived, so they can hardly wait to see what's happening. Now, just think about it. You can go uh, in the village, anywhere in the village, and um, you, you speak to the head man or the chief, and you just say, listen, can we set up the gospel tent? And they say, oh, yes, that'd be great. You do that. So we, we set up the gospel tent, and then with a handful of people and a handful of gospel tracts, we would just go around hut to hut and invite people in to come and hear the gospel. And um, and so at 5 o'clock, you do that. And by 7 o'clock in the evening, you've got 300 people in the tent ready to listen to the gospel. You know, this is so thrilling. I, I, I preached to more unsaved people in one Sunday in Botswana 
that a whole year of preaching at family Bible hour services on this side of the world. It's just a thrill. And if there's anybody here who likes to preach the gospel, I don't know what you do in here, man. Get over there. That's where the fish are biting. That's where they are. And seriously, I, I, I mean this in, in, every, in, in, in every serious fiber of my being. I don't think it's fair that some people can hear the gospel many times over when some of the world have never heard the gospel once. And that should be a solemn reminder to us that we are responsible to bring the message to those that are lost. Now, after we have gospel meetings, we got uh, a pile of kids, and uh, they say, can we come to your Sunday school? And we say, well, sure you can come. And uh, I say, well, listen, we'll meet here at 8 o'clock Sunday morning, and I'll come with my truck, and I'll pick you up, and we'll take you to the chapel. So I come with my truck, and look at these kids. I've got all these kids to take. So uh, I pack them in. I can get about 25 in a load, and I end up having to do three trips. And I'm thinking, there's no way I'm going to do this. I'm going to do something different. So I got myself a bigger truck, and <laughs> I can do I can put 65 kids in one, in one truck. I ended up buying two trucks like this, two flatbed, two-ton trucks, and this is how we were transporting the children to Sunday school. I mean, what an awesome privilege. And you know what? You have never heard singing till you get 200 African kids together in one place, and they sing. Am I right, sister? You see, these guys, it's part of their DNA. They know how to harmonize right, off the, right out of the womb, man. They can do it. And uh, it's fantastic to hear these guys. This guy, this, this guy is taking credit for it. All right, good. Okay. And uh, man, it is just awesome to get these kids together and sing. And I love leading these kids singing. It's just a tremendous experience. Now, we've had really, really exciting answers to prayer. One of them is uh, how the Lord provided a building for us. When we first started uh, meeting, we met in our home, and then eventually we built this thatched roof um, uh, gospel meeting place, and we started meeting in there for a couple of years. And then uh, as the village started to develop, we noticed um, modern buildings popping up here and there in the village, and we thought, you know, it'd be a really nice testimony if, uh, if, if our assembly had a nice building as well. So I was coming home on furlough, or we were coming home on furlough, and uh, I had been meeting with an elder in an assembly in Ontario on a weekly basis just to pray about different things, and, uh, and he was also a contractor. And I shared my exercise with him about uh, seeing a proper building established in Maud and and he thought that would be a great idea. He bounced some ideas around. We both did. And, and uh, well, he didn't have any money. I didn't have any money. So we thought, well, let's just commit it to the Lord. And uh, so it was time for us to go back to Botswana. We were traveling through the States here, the eastern side. And um, a brother came up to me. He wanted to meet with us. And, uh, and he said, uh, so Sid, I hear, uh, I hear you fellows want to put up a building in Maun. I said, yeah, we would like to do that. He said, um, how much do you think it would cost to get that building up to roof level? And I thought, oh man, I hadn't really thought this through. I, 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 you know, I, I know we can build pretty cheap over there. And um, I just pulled a number out of the hat. I said, well, maybe 25000 you know. And without even uh, uh, another breath, he says, no, I, I can afford that. And he wrote me a check for $25,000. 
I thought, why didn't I say 50,000? It was... Uh... <laughs> so he gave me this check, and we went back to Botswana with $25,000, and we started, uh, we started our project. And, uh, and it was really, really cool just to see how the Lord brought the funds in. We never had to mention it to anybody. People were interested. They spoke to us. And money just came. And uh, it was so exciting just to see how this building came together. And so I'm, I'm a Canadian. I think big. And, uh, and so I, 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 we built this chapel here. We, we can seat 500 people in there. And I built that for $85,000. So I was a little off. But um, <laughs> anyways, the Lord uh, provided uh, the funds. And it was just amazing just to see how that all came together. We hosted the National Easter Conference that year. We opened the building. We had a number of speakers from this side of the world came over. And uh, it was just really exciting just to see how that came together. Now, as my first 10 years in Botswana, um, uh, after I recovered from meningitis, TB meningitis, I could walk as good as you guys could. But the last 10 years in my own, I started to get weaker for some reason. And the doctors still don't know why. Uh, I, I think there's one doctor that has given me a, a fairly clear explanation why, but most doctors have no idea. There's no further neurological damage, but I was just slowly getting weaker and weaker. I first started just to trip over my right foot. I started to use a walking stick, and uh, after a couple of years of that, I started to use two walking sticks, and then eventually I started to use crutches. And as I got weaker, Karen and I both sensed that maybe our time in Botswana was coming to an end because I was needing proper physiotherapy and proper health care. And so we began entertaining the thought that it's time for us to move on. And you know, missionaries need to entertain that thought. Uh, missionaries should be working themselves out of a job. They need to leave the work in local hands and get on to something else. And so the Lord made it clear to us it's time to move on. So after 20 years of serving the Lord in Maun, we left, this is our last Lord's Day with them, and we left them with 25 believers in fellowship and a lovely building, 200 kids in the Sunday school, two pickup trucks. And I look at that picture, and Karen and I, you know, we're just simple little Christians, just come from, the, from nowhere. But the Lord is able to use any of us if we're prepared to, to, to just obey his voice. And I look at that picture, and I have more sense of gratitude and fulfillment, I think, than Bill Gates does when he looks at Microsoft. I'm really absolutely thrilled. Now the question is this, how is this going to work when you leave? A lot of people think, well, it's going to start to crumble. But you know what? This is the Lord's work. It's not Sid and Karen's work. So we committed these dear folks to the, to the Lord, and, and I was speaking to one of the elders about five months ago. I speak with him every couple of weeks. But about five months ago, I asked Dan, Dan in Galuka. I said, Dan, now tell me, how's the assembly getting on? He says, Sid, by the Lord's grace, we have seen a few more saved, and we have 33 in fellowship now. He says, but we have 600 children in the Sunday school. I said, 600 kids? How did you do that? He says, man, whenever we set up the gospel tent, there's another 50 kids that want to come. And, 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 but we've got a problem. He says, the police have stopped us transporting the children in the back of trucks. And I thought, well, I figured that day would come. He says, so what we do now is we have 400 children. We'll walk the two or three miles to the chapel. 
And then we have, we have rented another piece of land about eight miles away. Uh, I guess it's 10 kilometers, however that is, six miles away. And, um, and uh, we've rented a piece of land, and there's 200 more kids meet there. So 400 walk there, and there's another 200 that meet in that, that piece of land. So, I mean, the Lord is working there, and we just thank the Lord for that. So, now, I promised some of the kids some animals here. Um, this is how we feed the birds in Botswana, all right? I don't know, maybe I put them to sleep already. No, he's still awake back there. That's good. Now, listen, uh, we had a, a young lady who, uh, this is the lady who drafted our chapel building, in, uh, and she came out for a visit. And uh, we took her up in the Okavango for some fishing, and I said, uh, Tara, uh, I know you're a brave girl, so I want you just to stand at the bow of this boat. Whatever you do, don't fall into the water. There's lots of crocs in there. But uh, we had caught a small tiger fish, and uh, she's holding it up there. Now, in the bush there, can you see that? There's a little white spot there. That's an African fish eagle, okay? Now, just watch what happens here. That African fish eagle has spotted that tiger fish. Now, Tara is starting to get afraid. Uh, you'll see her hand come up to her chin here. Pretty soon, her knees start to buckle as she thinks what she's getting into. And just about now, she's freaking out because this, uh, this fish eagle has got a huge wingspan, okay? And he is stalling in front of her to slow down in order to get this fish with his talons out in front like this. You can't see those talons, but Tara can sure see them. And uh, that fish eagle took it right out of her hand. And there's the fish eagle enjoying it. So after we uh, recovered from our, our ill, um, when we left uh, Botswana, it was clear that we, we would need to either come home to Canada or move to South Africa. South Africa has great health care. And uh, so we've decided, we decided to move to Cape Town. So just in the last few minutes here of the meeting, I'm going to fly through these last few slides and tell you a little bit about Cape Town. Uh, Cape Town is, a, is probably one of the most prettiest cities in the world, but it's also one of the most dangerous um, there are 4 million people in Cape Town. If you count the suburbs, you're looking at about 8 million people. Unemployment is a huge problem, 24%. HIV, 19%. But get a hold of this, 35%, over 35% of this population is living on less than a dollar a day. Can you imagine what it would be like to do that? And uh, serious, serious problems. Um, as a result of that, you see these squatter camps going up all over the place. You'd be driving down the freeway, and um, there's these, all of a sudden you see this, this squatter camp. They call them undesignated settlements, and they're, and they're filled with, with uh, people looking for a better life. A lot of them are not even from South Africa. They come from Mozambique, from, they come from Zimbabwe and Malawi, and different troubled areas up northern Africa have come down looking for a better life. And, you know, they start off with just a cardboard box, and they, they find a piece of corrugated iron and... Uh, and a wooden pallet, they start to build a home. And this is what the situation looks like, as far as the eye can see. And this is a dangerous place. I mean, the cops won't even go in there. It's that dangerous. It's run by gangsters. It's uh, crime and prostitution, drugs, human trafficking. It all goes on there. And, 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 and this is such a tremendous social problem in, in all of South Africa, but particularly in, in the Western Cape right now, in the Cape region. And um, just think of the thousands of little kids that are being raised up in that, in that environment. 
Well, Karen and I, uh, we, we had to try and learn Afrikaans. That's the language <coughs> of, the, of the people there. They use uh, English as well, but as you get in the country districts, some people don't even understand English, so you have to use Afrikaans. And so uh, we, we joined with an assembly in Cape Town called Hebron. And uh, Hebron is a, a lovely assembly. It's a very interesting uh, thing if you think about apartheid. Um, you see, in the, uh, uh, when the apartheid days, the assemblies were also divided up into different colors. Now, uh, you have your blacks, and you have your whites, and then you have what are called coloreds. Now, many people here, when you talk about a colored person, you're thinking of this brother here. Um, but you're not. In, 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 in Cape Town, a colored person is someone who is of mixed origin. They're, either, they're part African, they're part Indian, and they're part white. And they have their own culture. They have their own way of doing things, and they had their own assemblies as well. And um, now when apartheid was done away with, uh, of course, there was more of a mingling going on. And this assembly, which was formerly a white assembly, is now a mixed assembly with um, half white and half colored folk. And a, a really, really sweet assembly, a tremendous, tremendous assembly. And uh, they took us in there and have adopted us. Uh, we, we went there, we were really exhausted spiritually, physically, mentally, and they just uh, opened their arms and have been loving us and uh, been a, just a great encouragement. So we, uh, we, they asked us if we could do a, a gospel work with them, and so we came up with a, a unique sort of thing that we, we would try, and I'm not used to preaching in the first world, I'm used to the third world in Botswana, and so we thought, what are we going to do? And, I, and, and, and we thought, well, why don't we do a car wash? We'll use our parking lot and we'll have a free car wash, and we'll offer to wash the people's cars. So we went around the neighbor with these John 3 and 16 um, uh, seed sower texts in Afrikaans with an invitation to bring their car to the chapel, and we would wash their car. And also, we would give away uh, free boerwors. Now, our young people were out on the street with banners. Now, um, we were having a free braai. Now, what's a braai? A braai in South Africa is what you know as a barbecue. And we're giving away free boerwors. Now, a boerwors is, is like your hot dogs, but 10 times better. Really, really good. And so we had all of these young people out waving people in. And uh, so we did this on the Saturday before a week of gospel meetings. Now, we had Sandy McEachern come, a friend of mine from Canada. He came over for a week of gospel meetings. And the, and the Saturday before, we, we had this car wash, and, and everybody got involved in, 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 in washing, washing cars. And uh, so we had the cars being washed in this side of the chapel, and the, the boerwors were being prepared on the other side. And, and then in the middle, we had, I set up a gospel um, a table with different literature and a PowerPoint going on. And and, and then one of our brethren had a race car. And I said, no, bring that, bring, bring. You know, they have Canada cruisers up in Canada. You bring that race car along, we'll park it right in front of the chapel and watch what happens there. Now, I don't know if anybody knows much about race cars here, but this is one of the fastest cars on the planet, okay? This is called an aerial atom. It goes zero to 60 miles an hour in two and a half seconds. Lamborghinis can't keep up to them. And uh, so this thing is a, like a rocket on a skateboard. We brought that out, and that brought a lot of guys out of the woodwork, and, and, and we had a great opportunity just to share the gospel with different people coming and uh, receiving invitations. And, <clears throat> of course, I got to ride the race car. And um, believe it or not, that street legal in Cape Town. It wouldn't be here, but it's in, in Cape Town it was. 
And uh, we, we saw two souls saved in, uh, in that week of gospel meeting. So we, we thank the Lord for the Lord being able to work even in these, these places, you know. It's easy to preach in Botswana. It's not easy to preach here, isn't it? It's difficult here. It's, it's difficult in Cape Town too. But, you know, we need to keep at it. We need to keep reaching out. Don't give up. We've got to keep at it and, uh, and, and, and be able to reach out to these people. I'm going to close with, with three prayer requests, and, um, and then um, we'll let you know. We'll let you go then. You can pray for the Maun Assembly, um, the little assembly there, uh, 33 believers in fellowship. There's two African elders there now, and uh, the 600 kids that come to the Sunday school. You can pray about that, uh, that piece of land that uh, they're renting. Um, I think we're going to be purchasing that piece of land. Uh, we would like to purchase it and build a, a little shade structure so the kids can meet there under the shade of that structure. You can pray for my health concerns. Uh, the, the, the most recent thing that we have come to understand why I'm having difficulties now is, is I have been, because of my, my neuro, neurological problem, it has left me with an injured bladder. I have a neurogenic bladder. And as a result of that, I get bladder infections two or three times a year. Now, about 12 years ago, I started using an antibiotic that has been very effective in, in eliminating the infection. And the antibiotic is called Cipro. It's a very powerful antibiotic. Now, last year, uh, the FDA has forced Bayer to push a, put a special warning on the box that the use of Cipro can cause irreversible neurological side effects. And when that was discovered um, by my surgeon in Cape Town, she, she understood that I've been using this for 12 years and it sort of linked up with the time that I started to deteriorate. So the possibility that, that is that this is a result now of a, of a bad reaction to an antibiotic. So you can pray that the Lord will give us some recovery um, they, they say it's irreversible, um, but the Lord is, is not necessarily listening to doctors, as we well know. And uh, just pray that I will be able to see a little bit of recovery from this. And then you can pray for our future, the focus of our ministry. Uh, we leave February 28th, uh, heading back to Cape Town. We're going to plug back into this assembly in Hebron and continue to work with them. Uh, but we're just wondering before the Lord as to how much longer we're going to be in Africa. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm having health issues, and we have three sons on this side of the world. Grandchildren are going to be coming down the road, and, uh, and maybe the Lord has a work for us to do on this side of the world. And um, so we, we just ask you just to pray for wisdom that we might know clear guidance from the Lord. Now with that, I'm going to ask uh, one of the brethren here, maybe brother, would you just mind closing, uh, yeah, would you mind closing in prayer for us? Yeah, thank you.